Greetings, everyone. It's great to get together as we do on these holy days on the day of Pentecost. We know that each year when we come together on this annual day of first fruits or Pentecost, we often read of the dramatic giving of God's Spirit on this very day. Let's start out quickly in Acts chapter 2. We might as well start the sermon exactly in that area. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says in Acts 2 verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, one mind, one purpose, in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Just imagine that appearance, divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you think of that imagery and how it must have appeared. Divided tongues as a fire setting on each and every one of them. What, what an amazing appearance that must have been. Tongues of fire. And I know it may be difficult to fully visualize it, but it, it's somewhat, I assume, I imagine, like what you'd see with a wood campfire with roaring flames leaping, in this case, on their heads, which was very unique. And over the years, I've often thought about that when my wife and I have gone camping. I've always in, enjoyed building a large fire, a campfire, watching the tongues of fire kind of leaping off the wood into the air. Uh, occasionally, I've kind of overdone it with the wood and the fire. But it always gives a very powerful image of the fire itself. And there are many instances in Scripture when God has demonstrated His presence and His power, for example, by the supernatural appearance of fire. Very visual, very exciting. On this very momentous occasion, the amazing appearance of fire was dramatic evidence of God's Spirit given to the New Testament church at that time. So notice that these flames of fire were upon each individual, uh, each person there present apparently, showing that God had given his spirit and his power to each and every soon-to-be-begotten member of, God, of the body of Christ, of God's future family. And at that time, the scripture says in verse 4, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled totally with the Holy Spirit, with God's spirit, beginning of his power within them. There's a lot to be gained and understood by looking into and understanding the symbolism, the symbolism of fire and God's spirit and his power that's available to us today as we understand this analogy. Notice Paul's statement in Hebrews chapter 12, for example. In verse 29, Hebrews 12:29, where it very clearly says... For our God is a consuming fire. And, of course, we know that's analogy again. But it gives you a little bit of a sense of the impact of the power of the great God himself, a consuming fire, as we'll find out later. Today I'd like to look at the scriptural examples, first of all, of the evidence of God by the analogy and the evidence of fire at various times. And secondly, we will look at some of the vital lessons for us today. We can apply in our own life, and we see that and imagine that fire within us energizing us in God's way of life. The title of the sermon 
our God, a consuming fire. So let's begin by looking at, at God's examples, at other powerful manifestations of fire, and God giving that imagery, that evidence of fire to get our attention, to get people's attention. And we'll first of all notice God's appearance to Moses when God began to deal with Moses early on. Remember, when God first began to show himself to Moses, it was approximately 400 years since the days when the sons of Jacob, that is, were brought to, to Egypt. Acts chapter 7, verse 6 says about 400 years. And perhaps many of God's principles had been lost during that long period in Egypt. Individually, many of the principles among many of the descendants had been lost at that time. 400 years is a long time. It would be about the same length of time of the founding of the first English settlement, that is, in North America, in Jamestown, in about 1607, till approximately this time, plus a few years, over 400 years. Think about it when you consider that length of time, 400 years, the same length of time, back in pagan Egypt at that time, when the Israelites were in Egypt, many and perhaps much of the knowledge of the true God and the principles of God had not all totally been passed down from father to son, from parents to child. So God began to reveal himself, first of all, to Moses and God's individual that God had called and chosen to lead Israel at that time. And we see a very powerful introduction, an exciting introduction, got his attention, and understandably so. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, and we'll see this uh, very powerful imagery. Exodus 3 and verse 1. Exodus 3, 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Oreb, Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, in a flame of fire. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. We notice it's, it's described as the angel of the Lord, and really the, the word translated angel in this case could very properly be translated messenger in this situation, the messenger of God. Strong's Concordance, reference 4397, describes the word translated as messenger this way, quote, messenger of God, that is, an angel, also a prophet, a priest, or a teacher, an ambassador, an angel, a king, a messenger. Of course, we remember in John 1, 1, we read of Jesus Christ before his human birth as the word, as the Greek logos, meaning spokesman, the spokesman of God, of the God family. And also it states that he created everything, everything that existed, that is, in time in the universe. Exodus 3, verse 2, it states this messenger appeared in a flame of fire. And uh, you again see the imagery of fire and power consuming. And this must have been an extraordinary sight when God, when Jesus Christ, appeared in the midst of a bush in this way. And the bush didn't burn up. And you can just imagine seeing it, but also hearing it as, as uh, flames consume a bush. 
In most cases, it's drawing in oxygen, there's sound, there's the, there's the wishing of wind, so to speak. And verse 3, Exodus 3, verse 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn, why it's not totally disappearing here. Verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So not only did the bush not burn up, but here was the great God of Israel in a flaming fire, a miraculous supernatural event. Wouldn't that get your attention? We know that it got Moses' attention, an amazing supernatural event. The next miraculous show of supernatural fire and a representative of God occurred when God himself led Israel out of Egypt in Exodus 13. Another example or fire is shown here in this imagery. Exodus 13 and verse 21 it says in verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And you see here in this case, verse 22, He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God went before them. And uh, in that pillar of fire, that burning fire, uh, I guess we could visualize it different ways. It doesn't say exactly, but I, I visualize flames of fire at night reaching maybe several hundred feet into the air. Uh, it had to be visible to the camp of Israel, of several million Israelites at that time. And assuming it was a literal fire, that is physical fire, there probably again would have been a level of noise as the flames sucked in oxygen, consumed oxygen, and it would have been a spectacular show to see. God used that image of power representing him and his presence. Later on, after the exodus at Mount Sinai, Jewish tradition states that it was on Pentecost, actually Pentecost this very day, that God appeared and delivered the law of God, codified in the Ten Commandments, on the tablets of stone. Also, there's a strong indication in chronology of events in Exodus that, indeed, if we put them all together, the Ten Commandments were given on this day, on this very day of Pentecost. Let's go to Exodus 19, over a few chapters. Exodus 19 and verse 17. 19, 17. And it says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Can you imagine what that would be like, to see this fire and a quaking of the mountain? It, it would get your uh, senses stimulated, your pulse up. 
And it says the Lord descended upon it in fire. Incredible, incredible lasting memory that one would have, should have anyway, all the days of their life. Now on to Exodus chapter 24. Let's look at 24 and verse 9. We read in verse 9, And Moses went up also, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Incredible. Can you imagine what that would look like, the, the impact of this meeting? You would remember it for the rest of your life, this incredible experience. And, and his feet standing, God's feet standing, on a paved work, it says, of sapphire stone. What beauty and what majesty and I'm sure what light at that point in time. And now verse 16, moving down to uh, verse 16. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. <clears throat> The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. Notice that, a consuming fire, a powerful fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And again, a very incredible sight. It should be a very lasting memory. And we see another example of it next in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, as God revealed himself, as the word did, Deuteronomy 4 the one who became Jesus Christ, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 23. In verse 23, we read 423, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. Now notice verse 24. For, because... The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In other words, God wants to consume us in a right way in our entire life. And God doesn't tolerate, doesn't want to tolerate rebellion, sin, the wrong way of life. God wants to consume us in a positive way. Our God is a consuming fire, uh, wanting to initiate that, that power of the Spirit in us, a better way of life, a future the whole purpose of God. Deuteronomy 9. Let's turn over a few more ch chapters. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over to the Jordan today and go in to, to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, in other words, up into the sky and, and in height, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. So here we have that imagery again, a powerful consuming fire. And he will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. 
So I think it's interesting to contemplate the fact that that fire, that fire symbolic of God's power, of the great power of the great God, and symbolic of his spirit, his mind, can lead us, can empower us in a way to develop the very character of the great God. Um, being led by his spirit, it's energizing, it brings understanding and truth, and if we allow it, motivation into our life. And at the same time, that power of God can and will destroy all evil. You know, evil out of our life, a wrong way of thinking, a wrong way of applying ourselves in life, of lusts and wrong motivations. And that power of God's Spirit can help us destroy that kind of wrong way of thinking, wrong way of living. Well, we know the culmination of life on the earth will be the, at least uh, physical human beings, will be the age-ending fire after the third resurrection, when this phase of the plan of God is accomplished, is finished, and all the incorrigibly rebellious human beings and those wicked who rejected the great God, his offer to develop his mindset, to be a part of the family of God before he expands his family out through the galaxies to finish the creation. And it says all that on the surface of the earth will be burned up, those rebellious and wicked ones, uh, along with the surface of the earth, all the combustible material on the surface of the earth, as God actually prepares the earth for the arrival of the New Jerusalem, that is, the headquarters city of the universe right here on the planet. Uh, as the earth is finally reformed and remade, Revelation 20 speaks of, of that time, of that future. Revelation 20, and God consumes in a fire... The remnant that's left of mankind, the civilizations, let's say, the evidence. Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, and small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, according to, in other words, according to their life, what they had done with their life, with their allotted time, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books, comparing it to God's way of life and God's principles. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works, according to his life, how he lived his life, how he, how he thought, how he behaved, whether or not he rebelled or humbly submitted himself to God, to the government of God, to his way of life, to the plan of God. Now, verse 14, And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Notice that. The lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found or written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see at the end of the age, God's intent then in time, of course, is to destroy all wrong way of thinking, all, all human life that's in rebellion or rejection to God's way of life to empower. His intent is to empower all humans who are willing to be empowered by his spirit 
kind of the imagery of, of those flames of fire to energize our lives, to reject ultimately the other way of life. And again, God as a consuming fire, destroying evil, and hopefully we allow it to destroy evil in our life so that we're focused on the great God. We want the future. We want what God has to offer. We want to get rid of. We want to. We want the fire of God, so to speak, of God's spirit to consume, to destroy in our life those things that are not pleasing to God, those things that harm us, those things that harm others, those things that you know, in reality are foreign to God's way of thinking of vanity and greed and self-elevation and extreme competition and on and on that would bring havoc into the family of God if that was allowed to continue. So all evil eventually will be destroyed by the power of God, by the power of God's Spirit. Notice in in Matthew chapter 3 in verse 11, Matthew 3 verse 11, And John the Baptist was speaking here, Matthew 3, verse 11. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with fire, that consuming fire that can light up our life and that can potentially destroy that evil that surrounds us, sometimes permeates us. Verse 12, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And you see that cleansing action of God's Spirit in God's plan and His purpose. So baptizing humanity with fire begins to occur in one sense, at the day of the Lord, and extends to the final destruction of rebellion at the very end of the age. Well, now that we've seen some of the symbolism of fire, of the presence of God, uh, of literally the power of God's Spirit, let's apply the lessons for us today who are privileged to have God's Spirit, who are privileged to have the symbolic fire in our life to the extent that we will allow God to work in our life, to give us more of that power, more of that direction, more of that spiritual energy as well, to the extent we want it, to the extent we seek the great God. So let's look at several ways, several ways that we can apply it in our life, hopefully to motivate us to go beyond, to root out, you might say, and destroy whatever evil that lurks. We know we all have things in our mind still that we have to root out. We have to change our way of thinking. We want God's Spirit to kind of consume the wrong, let's say, way of thinking and to light our fire spiritually, so to speak, to motivate us to accomplish God's purpose. Number one, I've got several points here that I think could be helpful. We should seek to be more fully empowered by God's Spirit, let's say, to light our fire. We want our fire lit. We think of it in a sense spiritually, but enthusiasm and motivation in God's way of life, and when we have fully surrendered, when we have repented, when we have repented, their initial repentance, but that must occur, of course, through the rest of our life to a deeper level, but initially, when we have received God's Spirit following baptism at that moment, God gives us His Spirit. If we have surrendered, 
if we've humbled ourselves, if we've agreed with the great God, with his contract, his new covenant, we're going to submit ourselves to his will, his way forever, not just as long as we live in this life, but forever. But that really, at that moment in time, following baptism, there's only a small portion of God's spirit, of the power of God that enters us at that time. And it's evident, looking at scriptures, equivalent of the analogy of a small deposit, similar to a deposit given when maybe you're purchasing a home. You spent quite a bit of time looking for a home. You've sorted it out. You want to purchase a home. You finally found the one that you want. And you give an offer, and there is a deposit. And with that deposit, you're indicating there's more to come you know, you intend to follow through. There's more to come if the conditions are met, that is, with the contract that's offered. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Let's look at this analogy of the, of the deposit, of the small earnest. Various, it's translated in various ways in different translations. We'll look, at, we'll look at a couple or three. Ephesians 1 verse 13 In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. Notice that. Salvation is part of the good news. Absolutely. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the, in the New King James, which is, it says who is, but more properly, which is, the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And, and in the King James Version of the old King James, it says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, which is the earnest, kind of an older uh, English term, uh, the earnest itself, which is an early deposit, you could call it a portion of a down payment, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchase possession unto the praise of his glory. And that is the King James Version. And also, I'll read from the NIV. Speaks of the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who or which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, that's the NIV. And we find uh, from Strong's Concordance, reference number 728, that deposit, the word translated deposit in the NIV or the earnest in the King James, uh, reference 728, the Greek word is translated as a pledge, that is to say, part of the purchase money given in advance as security for the rest of the purchase money. So God has given, if we understand the analogy here being applied, God has given only a portion of his power and his spirit to us at initial conversion and baptism, we surrendered, we received God's Spirit. It's up to us to seek Him from that point forward, His spiritual power on a daily basis to be more greatly empowered by the Spirit of God over the years. As the years go by, we seek, hopefully, we seek God more aggressively. We want more of His Spirit, 
more of his mind, more of what he has to offer, more of his way of thinking, that it we're more stable mentally, emotionally, in every way in our life. And, of course, this process is part of the condition of the covenant or the contract with the great God. And if we fulfill the conditions, if we remain faithful, if we seek our God day by day, God will, in time, in time when we fulfilled you know, God's requirements in our life and God finishes training, we've allowed ourselves to finish our training, we will exchange our physical life at Christ's return for the very powerful, eternal gift, those spirit bodies that God's going to give us that are just energized and full of the power, the power of God's spirit, uh, totally, completely, in the sense that we're no longer physical, we're no longer prone to, you know, tiredness. We all get tired. We need sleep. We need to rejuvenate. But we'll be empowered to then as spirit beings fully, never tired, never out of energy, always willing and ready to accomplish and to accomplish God's purpose in his plan. So, again, God's only given us a portion, kind of like a deposit or maybe even we might say later a down payment. Jesus Christ's message, if we remember, to the majority of God's people in the very last era before Christ's return, one of his warning messages and his concerns at the very end of the age is that many, is that the majority of God's people are lukewarm. In other words, they're not on fire spiritually. We see that in, in Revelation 3.16. They're lukewarm. They're not hot, on fire. They're not really cold. They're not ice cold. But they're kind of in the middle ground. It's kind of uh, aware of God's purposes, his principles, the truth. But they have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And they don't fully trust God, or they would be on fire. They would be empowered at that time. So you and I have access to the great God, to his power. We have access. If we want more, we know where to go. We need to ask God. We need to implore God. We need to see to it. And in seeking God aggressively, asking God to give us more of his spiritual fire and analogy of, of his spirit, that kind of energy that can energize us as we seek him daily, as we seek him more fully. Hopefully we want that. We want to be energized. You know, as Mr. Merrith often says, speaking of fire in the belly, God wants us to have fire in our very being from, from head to toe and for that fire to, to flame within us totally, to flare up brightly, so to speak. God's not going to empower us, of course, unless we seek it, unless we act first after he's given us his spirit. It's our responsibility to seek more of that energy, more of that power, to move closer to the great God and become more like him. And as God says in so many scriptures and implication, seek him with all your heart and he will be found. So if we seek God aggressively with all our heart, we'll find him, we'll move closer to him, and we'll have more of his mind, we'll be more empowered with that uh, spiritual fire, so to speak. Notice also God's instruction to all those that he calls in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23. Proverbs 1, verse 23. God says, turn at my rebuke. Hopefully, 
You know, we all recognize at times we're corrected. Hopefully we want, we want gentle correction uh, that will change our thinking, mid-course corrections that will keep us on track, and in reality that will keep us from hurting ourselves and from hurting others. Turn at my rebuke. If we're sensitive to God's guiding, to his, to his gentle correction, surely I will pour out my spirit on you. In other words, if we are sensitive to God's correction and guidance along the way, he says, surely I will pour out my spirit, my spiritual power upon you, and I will make my words known to you. So we'll have a clear understanding of God's way of life. It will make sense to us. We won't wonder sometimes or wander around in spiritual confusion. I will make my words known to you. It's, it's words, but also understanding. It will make sense to us. And we'll be able to be motivated then by that kind of understanding. It makes sense. We get it. We want more of what God has to offer. So that's really one aspect of it is that we should daily seek to be more fully empowered by God's Spirit to light our fire. If we think of it that way, to light our fire within for a better life, for a better future. Number two, and expanding on that analogy, I think, that God would have us understand on Pentecost. Number two, we need to be consumed by God, by the power of his spirit in this life. Totally consumed. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, we read, For our God is a consuming fire. So remember that concept. He is a consuming fire. He consumes what he ignites. In a positive way. And the Greek word translated consuming here, I, I understand it is the only place used in the scripture. According to Strong's, it means, defining a word, I guess, similar to the word, it means to consume utterly. To consume utterly. I think an illustration of this in the Old Testament is the supernatural fire from God that consumed the initial offering of the altar in the tabernacle. And we'll see that in Leviticus 9, a very powerful, consuming fire. Leviticus 9 and verse 20, verse 23. And we'll read in verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw, saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You realize, of course, that that fire, that, the very evidence of the great God, they, uh, individuals saw it, they, sh they shouted, they were amazed at, let's say, that supernatural event. And exciting as it was, and it consumed, as it says here in verse 24, the burnt offering. It slowly was totally consumed. It wasn't just a little bit on one edge. It was totally consumed by the power, by the power of the great God of that supernatural fire. We can read about, of course, in 1 Kings also, I think another illustration of consumption, of what can happen with the consuming fire and power of the great God in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 38, we can read about the struggle when Elijah was struggling with the prophets of Baal. 
And it says in chapter 18, and in verse 38, when we look at verse 38, and, and the fire at that time, the fire from God, the fire of the Lord, verse 38, fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. In other words, consumed it totally and the wood. So this was greater yet than just a sacrifice, but also the wood and the stones and the dust. So a total consumption here. God was making a point, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And we see the evidence here in, in, in illustration that God, as a consuming fire, as he begins ultimately to work in our life, he wants to consume us totally in a right way, in a positive way. So in a sense then, God utterly consumes our life if we'll allow him, consumes our life to have a better life, a better future, and truth, we benefit. It's not consumption in the sense of disappearing at all. The only thing that disappears is the evil out of our life. So God destroys a wrong way of thinking, a wrong way of life, a wrong way of living, those things and ways that harm us, that harm our family, our loved ones, other brethren in the church. Slowly, God's spirit, his power can consume and remove the wrong in our life. So he, he wants to utterly destroy human nature, really Satan's nature then, that we've acquired in society and from our background. God wants to consume it, to destroy it totally, destroy a competitive spirit among us, wanting to compete with one another, uh, greed. God wants to consume and destroy the greed and the selfish accumulation or rebellion and refusing to work cooperatively together as a team, ultimately under the government of God. God wants to destroy that rebellion or anything else that leads to destruction, a destructive way of life. And so when God's Spirit functions as a consuming fire in our life, we absolutely we put Him first in our thoughts. And sometimes, of course, we, we struggle with that. But we want to put Him first in everything in our life. Why? Well, because we know, and we know that we know, as we see the evidence in our life and the proof that God's way of life works, that God only wants what is best for us what is best for us and our loved ones and others, both now, in this life, and forever. And God wants to do things for our good, not for our, our harm, but for our good. So it's a path to a better life, a better life in the present. We can think of it that way and realize, too, God's way of life works. It's just bottom line. It works. We have a better life, uh, more success in the right way, and the things that count in our relationships, in our marriage, in our family life, and, and typically on the, on the job as well as we get along with people more effectively. And, of course, we have an awesome future. It's not just the present. It's an awesome future in the family of God. So God wants what's good for us. God wants to bless us, to bring abundance in our life. So being consumed by God's Spirit... Is what we want. We want to be totally consumed by God's Spirit. Summarized in 2 Corinthians. I think this is a good illustration. And 2 Corinthians, we see the evidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
and verse 4. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, uh, the weapons we should use, the sword of the Spirit. They're not carnal. You know, they're not the ways of the world, but mighty in God from from and through the power of His Spirit. We're pulling down strongholds and getting rid of evils in our life and rejecting those things that are contrary to God's way of life, casting down arguments, human reasoning, whatever self-justification we normally come up with. In every high thing, self-elevation, you know, that kind of inborn human nature, desire to want to be self-elevated above others. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, that's the goal. That's the thought of being totally consumed in the end by the power of God's Spirit, by His way of life, by His laws. It brings a very stable mind, not a weak, fearful mind. You know, a, a deeply converted person has a very stable mind. Now, none of us are there perfectly, but that's God's agenda for us, even in this life, to develop a very stable mind. Not the spirit of, of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, not neurotic and fearful and anxious, but very a very stable, powerful, loving, joyful mind that all humanity wants, but they don't know how to get. And here God offers us that mindset Not all at once, but we work towards it as we allow God to consume our life, consume our thinking, to implement his way of thinking, his way of living in our life. So when God's Spirit functions as a consuming fire in our life, we absolutely must put him first in everything we do. Every aspect of our life, God is our highest priority. And again, we know that we know it's for our good. It's for We benefit. It's for the good of our loved ones, for our neighbors, and eventually the entire earth. Well, bringing every thought to the captivity of the obedience of Christ, to the unconverted, to the world, this would, you know, this would represent servitude. Some would say drudgery, every thought to obedience. But to us... With the all-consuming fire of God's Spirit, this can bring a level of peace and joy and a future that is beyond the world's understanding. The world just simply doesn't grasp it, doesn't know how to obtain it. The world wants that kind of mindset, but they don't really realize it comes from God, from His principles, from His way of life, and from the future that He offers us. A while back, I received an email from a uh, Tomorrow's World subscriber who was quite distraught at the time over his relationship of his ex-girlfriend leaving him at the time. And he said this, I don't know if you remember me, but we talked on the phone a while back. I don't have any real Christian friends, and I didn't know to who else to turn to. I prayed and am continually praying with fasting that God would restore my relationship with my ex-girlfriend, my best friend, I haven't had anyone else pray for me for these two months because I don't know who to tell it to. 
I'm in a lot of pain, and I've even considered suicide. Me and her were together for about two years, and now all of a sudden, she wants nothing to do with me at all. I never cheated on her or anything like that, but I admit that I have been harsh at times. Please don't cease to pray for me. I know God hears the prayers of his people. You can tell the situation to whoever you want, that many people may pray for me also. I am in a lot of distress, since she, once a Christian, has now said that she hates religion and all that stuff. I pray for a miracle, that God would open her eyes and that she would show him that he would show himself to her in a mighty way. Thank you for your time. Well, you know, in response to that email, I reminded him that is his God truly wants what's best for him. Wants best, what is best for him in the long run, of course, the the big picture. Uh, That is, if he would put God first in his life, and allow God to become his highest priority in his life. Not some relationship, but our relationship, his relationship with God above all else, above any human relationship. And I reminded him that God will provide his needs. God will provide, you know, in time, if he would follow and obey and seek God, God would provide the right person according to God's will. If he's patient with the great God, if he trusts the God's, God's judgment, well... I don't know whether or not this young individual allowed God to consume his life. Maybe that's beginning to happen and consume his priorities as it is. I can't say that. We don't know the outcome of every new person, uh, every person that shows interest in God's way of life. But what I can say is that God has called you and God has called me to be consumed by the power of his spirit. God's called us. God's chosen us as he's given his spirit. He wants us to be consumed. He wants us to be consumed with his mindset, his joy, his peace, and to literally turn our way of life over to God, to be consumed by God. Let's move on to a third lesson, a third point in illustration. Number three, we must allow the consuming fire of God's spirit to refine us. And it's all part of the same package here, but to refine us, to continue that process of refinement. Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2, Malachi 3, 2, we read, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like launderer's soap, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Well, we need to remember to willingly allow God to purify us, to remove the impurities, to occasionally even test us from time to time. And that refiner's fire allows impurities to come to the surface as it happens and in time to be removed They can be seen and removed more readily as they come to the surface. And we know that all of us still have some impurities. We have hang-ups. We have baggage from our past. We still need to refine. That is, we need to get rid of. I remember years ago, uh, before and during early years of my dental practice, of occasionally working with gold and making uh, some objects of jewelry and, and putting a torch to gold and heating it 
with very great temperature. And as that, that gold gets hotter and hotter and hotter and begins to glow, almost like the sun, and it turns into a liquid molten uh, amount of gold that we've heated, and amazingly so, impurities come to the surface. I've always seen that with a, with a torch on it. After it's melted, impurities rise to the surface and allows a person to add some flux and a little graphite rod and to remove some of those impurities. And in reality, that's a good analogy for what God wants to do with us. There are times when we need to be refined and we need to be tested. We need to know, you know whether we're learning, let's say, the subject, God's character. And uh, we need to see those impurities come to the surface. We need to spot them. We need to remove them. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, and he spoke about some of that refinement in a way. Romans 8, verse 18, and he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, kind of that refining process that we're allowed to go through, God's testing our metal, so to speak, to remove those impurities, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, that is, in time, as we reflect really the mind of Christ, the mind of God, godly character. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves. At times we recognize it's a struggle. Eagerly waiting for the, properly translated, for the birth, the redemption of our body. So Paul was in effect saying that life can be difficult. And we know that. We all experience that. Satan's world, a difficult time, a difficult age. Things don't always go our way, uh, maybe the way we want initially. But we realize that it, that brief period of training in our life on this planet can't be compared, Paul was saying, to the overwhelming blessings of birth literally into the family of God. There's no comparison, not even close. Peter said the same thing when he stated, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, some unusual, unanswerable strange thing. But rejoice, verse 13, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Of course, I'm, I read from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. So we know that we'll have occasional tests, trials. I guess trials are bigger than tests. But we have little tests probably every day, whether we're going to compromise, whether we're going to do the right thing or not. But oftentimes the trials may be even of our own making sometime. But more frequently, God allows us to have little tests along the way. And in truth, uh, in time, we can know that what is in our heart and what's in our mind, and we can analyze it and we can realize, well, I don't measure up here quite as much, and I need to, I need to change this, I need to change that. We need those little tests that kind of give us a reminder how well we're doing. So the point is... We should willingly participate in the refining process 
Ask God to show you where you need to change. I need to ask God to show me where I need to change to give me strength, to give me guidance, to give me gentle correction. I think it's good to ask for gentle correction. And so God will refine us that way. We'll see the impurities in our life, and we'll get rid of them if we're willing. So visualize, if you will, the tongues of fire of God's Spirit emanating from you. Think of it on Pentecost, what happened originally, tongues of fire emanating from those present. Well, symbolically, we can visualize ourselves, tongues of fire emanating from us. And we have access to the power of the universe, to the mind of God, to the spirit, to the power of God, that is. And God will enable us to succeed with that kind of power that we have access to. Finally, the fourth lesson I think we can learn as we look at God's spirit symbolized as flames of fire. Number four, we must stir up the fire. We must stoke the fire and constantly and never let it die. And that's critical. We keep that fire burning. We stoke it. We stir it up. We never let it die. Think of the example of supernaturally igniting the initial fire on the altar in the tabernacle. Those flames of fire were from God himself. And what an amazing Thing to see, Leviticus chapter 6. So let's look at Leviticus 6 and verse 9. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 9. Verse 9 we read, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar, all night until morning. And the fire of the altar should be kept burning on it. So the fire was not to go out. It was to keep burning. Verse 12. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And it shall not be put out. shall never be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Verse 13, a fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. So the priests were required to maintain this ever-burning fire, never let it go out, uh, uh, reminding us of God's ever-burning energy and power potentially for us in our life. And all through the night, they were to stoke that fire. They were stir it up. Add new wood or fuel when needed. And remember again that initial lighting, ignition of that fire on the altar was of God. Leviticus 9 and verse 24. Leviticus 9 and verse 24. It says, And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed, supernaturally came from God, and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar, And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. It was very, very clear. It was of God. It was supernatural. It was powerful. And and they focused on it, and it got their attention. Notice what occurs in the very next verse, Leviticus 10 and verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. 
but incense, put incense on it, rather, and offered profane fire. Profane fire, this was not of God, it was their own fire. Profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So the fire went out from the Lord and and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So they tried to add fire that was not of God. So think of the fire as representing God's spirit, as in in this case, uh, they brought other fire. It was contaminated. It wasn't of God's spirit. Uh, It was strange fire, so to speak, not of God. And today we would think of the spirit of the world as the spirit of disobedience, kind of strange fire that's in society. It is something to be avoided at all costs. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. And we're told here, we have not received that strange fire. We've received the fire of God. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world which was represented by that fire on uh, the day of Pentecost. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. It's not profane. It's not, it's not uh, from the God of this age. The spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So when the fire of God was initiated on the altar at that time... At, In Moses and Aaron's day, God instructed them to never let the fire go out. And you know, according to Jewish tradition, that fire was maintained from the time of the Exodus at this time to the Babylonian captivity, according to their tradition, a period of almost 860 years. And when the fire of God was finally extinguished, we know that God was no longer with his people Uh, That fire being extinguished, of course, uh, there was a time of captivity. There's a lesson for us today as well. We must never mix strange fire with God's Spirit. Once God has initiated His power in, in our life, the power of His Spirit, we cannot go back into the world. We cannot, we should not acquire, let's say, that strange fire from the world, from from the evil spirit world as well. Remember Christ's statement in Luke chapter 9, verse 62? Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Let's, let's look at that a similar analogy. It applies here equally, equally well. Luke 9 and verse 62. And Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, brethren, we have put our hand to the plow. God has given us his spirit. We cannot mix the way of the world with the way of God. We must continually stir up the spirit and the power of God in our life to keep it lit, to continue on. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul was reminding Timothy at that time. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul said, Therefore I remind you to stir up 
Remember to stir up that fire, to stir up the gift of God which is in you, speaking of God's Spirit and all the, all the things that it represents, the mind of God, the way of God. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't give us, you know, a fearful, anxious, neurotic life. But he's given us the spirit, it says, of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, just like the priests of old, we must continually stir up, we must continually stoke the spirit of God that's within us. And as Paul admonished the Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit, abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 22. God says, don't quench the spirit. And don't get close to the world. Don't let the world overcome us. Don't let, don't let the world's entertainment overcome us. So the world's lusts overcome us. Do not quench the spirit. Abstain from every form of evil. Well, brethren, let's remember the potential power of God's spirit in our lives. What it can be if we allow it, if we allow God our God is a consuming fire. God has lit that flame in our life of eternal life within us. If we've surrendered and given our life to the great God, let's be thankful that God has given us all what we need to succeed. All the energy and power and ability to succeed. It can be our path to eternal life if, if we seek to be more fully empowered by God's Spirit to light our fire. In other words, to to consume us in that way, consumed by the great God, by the power of his spirit and his life in us, if we allow the consuming fire of God's spirit to refine us daily and we're willing to allow a little heat to be applied and our own focus on our imperfections to refine us daily, and in turn, if we stir up that fire, if we stoke that fire constantly, determined to never let it die.